0: I just remember this day, this like bluebird day on the Tibetan Plateau and Everest and this chain of mountains is in the background. And we are actually standing outside of the Land Cruiser yelling at each other because we can't find a way to reconcile his deep, deep sense that this thing works and I ought to see it just from experiencing it and my sort of desperate need for some numbers that could capture create a shared reality around what was happening. And one, we actually ended up splitting. Oh, it was very, it was actually kind of funny in retrospect. He actually sent he got so mad, he sent a letter to my board terminating the relationship, which made them a little bemused.
1: You're listening to Eight of All, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This is a podcast about the people trying to find a better way to do good. Today, we'll be speaking with Kevin Starr, Kevin Starr has spent 30 years in philanthropy. He leads the Mulligo Foundation that invests in early-stage entrepreneurs. He's made some good choices with his investments. In fact, many of our past and future guests on the show were organizations he found early on, before others knew they'd be a good bet. I'm talking about Digital Green, NextLeaf, Medic, One Acre Fund, and a host of others. In today's conversation, we'll talk about what happened when he found himself suddenly responsible for tens of millions of dollars. On the one hand, he needs to build a shared reality with his board of directors. And on the other, he needs to find activists that share that reality. What is impact? And how do we know if we're getting there? What I love about Kevin's approach is that he's established a system that allows him to skip over the endless bureaucracy that plagues so many other aid programs. Now let's get started. Kevin was born in San Diego to a family of Seventh-day Adventists, a branch of Christianity that has a strong missionary tradition, a history and a culture of service. As a kid, he would go across the border to Mexico to give away items, an activity he now finds kind of ridiculous. But one thing was clear, even back then. Kevin had a thirst for adventure.
0: At age 19, I talked my way on to a, uh, a medical team that was going to refugee camps in Thailand. You talked your way. Definitely talked my way. I had no qualifications whatsoever. I went along and then I ended up, well it's a long story, but I ended up in the middle of a war actually inside Cambodia. and Got both kinds of malaria at once and, and rolled a vehicle and just had this huge adventure and decided to go to med school. And then I went back and went to UC Santa Cruz and ended up at UCSF Med School. And that's kind of the beginning of the journey.
1: Kevin kind of skipped over some key details there. So let me fill things in for you. Here's the scene. It's the 1980s. We have 19-year-old Kevin in Thailand, heading over the border into Cambodia. Now remember, the Khmer Rouge have just been overthrown in 1979. The Cambodian genocide is fresh in everyone's mind. In 1979 also, a massive famine caused hundreds of thousands of Cambodians to rush across the border into Thailand, resulting in one of the largest humanitarian aid efforts ever undertaken to that date. A few years later, things calm down a little bit, but there's still massive guerrilla warfare from the Khmer Rouge and other groups fighting the Vietnamese and Cambodian government on that border between Thailand and Cambodia. Here we have 19-year-old Kevin rushing into the fires.
0: It turned out that when you got to Thailand on the Cambodian border, that these camps were like, they were more like concentration camps. But it was after the sort of the real famine-induced rush across the border and people were pretty well fed. And my complete lack of qualifications kind of left me in a void. I didn't really know how to make myself useful. And then I heard about this bunch of Australian docks and, and docks from Monaco who were actually going to go in the mountains into Cambodia what was called a free refugee camp. And I didn't realize it until I hiked into the place, but it was really more of a guerrilla base than a refugee camp. And this sort of remnant anti-communists were fighting the Vietnamese who'd taken over Cambodia. And so we were kind of literally in the middle of a war. We'd get shelled every now and then and A lot of what we were doing was treating wounded gorillas.
1: And there's 19-year-old Kevin, no medical training, hanging out, just like trying to chip in as best you could?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I was trying to get people who were getting shot at to dig latrines and stuff like that. I mean, I was useless.
1: Oh, man, that sounds like a really transformative experience. It sounds traumatic, I would think. Oh, I imagine, but I guess you went through that experience and you came out deciding that you wanted to go to med school?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I was too young and dumb to be that traumatized, but I, I uh, it was <laughs> utterly transformative. But the thing was that it was the docs that I was around who seemed, you know, utterly useful and essential even. And so naturally, I just kind of grabbed onto that as a direction to go.
1: That makes sense. I guess as a, as an idealistic young 19-year-old, uh, you were looking for your way to, to make an impact, and the first thing that you needed was some hard skills to help you on that path.
0: Well, it was a little less noble than that. I was mostly looking for adventure.
1: So Kevin went to medical school to become an ER doctor. Kevin would practice ER for many years. In fact, I didn't even realize until this interview that he'd still practice medicine up until a few years ago. And he was just running the Malago Foundation at the same time. When he graduated from medical school, of course, he got back on the road to provide medical services in places like Peru and Bolivia. Then, in 1993, everything changed.
0: What happened was that in med school, I had this mentor, Reiner Arnhold. And Reiner had worked in every major humanitarian crisis as a pediatrician in the 60s and 70s. And he was coming along with some of those trips to the Andes. And in 1993, he was walking with me and he actually dropped dead of a major stroke. And in the aftermath of that, I get to know his family. It turns out they've been in banking for generations. And it turns out that my friend Reiner left 50 million bucks. And the family decided to start a foundation to carry on some version of his work and so they asked me to help because obviously we'd been working together and so i spent a lot of time trying to figure out what reiner would have wanted and he was sort of his whole life was about making the world a better place for kids and so we focused on kids and health initially but another thing he'd always said was he'd worked in refugee settings and he really wanted to create things that lasted with the, at the end of his life. And so I took those as my marching orders. And then I just, you know, doing ER was a way to have a lot of time, uh, flexible time that I could go look at stuff and try to figure out what worked. And anybody working on kids' health very quickly realizes that poverty is ultimately, you know, the cause of so much of, of what's gone wrong. And so we really expanded what we did into poverty over time and sort of developed the mission of trying to meet the basic needs of the very poor.
1: What would you do with $50 million? Where would you start? You know, when I'm daydreaming about changing the world, I've often wondered what I would do with that kind of money. I think what I didn't realize about someone in Kevin's position, though, is that even for someone like him, he's balancing the interests, the values, the philosophies of his board and his beneficiaries. I really enjoyed the next bit when he talks about how he was able to align a board that was composed of bankers, entrepreneurs, and investors. How do you make decisions together?
0: So Henry Arthold, my first board chair, was just a legendary investor. And initially it was kind of like, well, Kevin, you go find some good charities that would reflect Reiner's uh,
1: priorities. And then I, I feel just, like that's what a lot of foundations do. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And then well, I realized that
1: That's certainly easier. <laughs> uh, it's, <laughs> In a yeah, way. it's way
0: easier. But I realized that, you know, you could think about impact as the analog of profit, and you could think about the the cost of that impact as the analog of, of ROI, of return on investment. And then when we started looking at that, you know, we, we were all talking the same language finally. And and my board and I really started thinking about Milago as a as an investor in impact. And I know that I don't want to confuse that with impact investor. But the fact that what we were trying to do is take a bunch of philanthropic money and turn it into lasting impact. And then it was sort of lasting impact at scale. And you know, these I had this wonderful board of of bankers and then someone who'd started an organization that really grew. And so we really came together in common cause once we sort of had that central insight.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like having that perspective from banking uh, to look at this particular problem and say, like, how can we how can we take a similar approach? The key difference between profit and impact being that money is a lot easier to measure often but then i can see how that led to your other conclusion about how that you have to measure impact in order to know that your your investments are working out like you have to know what you're you're getting for it and there has to be there has to be something quantitative there that you can track as an investor yeah that's fascinating and your model is quite interesting i'm aware from some of the other talks that you've given that uh, you have a fellows program through which you get to know certain organizations and then and that you Invest in organizations that you know closely, that you know quite well. You trust them, and you provide unrestricted funding, which is such a godsend uh, to get an organization off the ground and going. Um, So, I have to imagine you know your portfolio quite well. You know the teams. You knew them when they were young, and as they've grown, and everything else. I'd love to hear some of the the stories that that has caught you up in. Are there some stories there that really stick in your mind as you look back on the investments that have shaped your investment thinking?
0: Yeah, we're we're really lucky in having this fellows program, which began uh, like so many things that I do sort of cluelessly and then gradually involved into something we're, we're proud of, which is to say we eventually realized that You know, Henry Arnhold loved this idea of fellows program of giving resources to talented people and seeing what happened. And so we kind of started with that idea, but gradually we realized there was these people that that were starting to be known as social entrepreneurs that were really, really kind of what fit what we were looking for. And so what we've gradually evolved into is is a sort of a two-year program where we find people who we think have a scalable solution and the chops to to really deliver on it. And we work with them for two years. We give them 100 grand over two years and teach them design for impact and strategy for scale and work on fundraising and talent development, board development, communications, a lot of the things that are some of the obvious ingredients to delivering on a good solution. And yeah, that gives us a chance to really get to know them. I mean, it's this wonderful gift in terms of due diligence, because by the time we've we've really been in their corner and gotten to know them for a couple of years, we understand whether it's a good fit for our particular kind of funding.
1: And then after that, there's the decision of whether you continue to invest, you know, on, on a longer term or not with some of these organizations.
0: Yeah, basically. Sometimes Sometimes it takes a couple of years after the fellowship for it to really become a good fit, but very often we get a really good sense that this is a fit pretty early on in the
1: fellowship. Kevin, in your experience running the fellows program, you must have met people of all sorts of different walks and sizes and organizations. Um, what are some of the what were some of the challenges that you faced? What were some organizations that maybe started off really well but then maybe didn't end up that way?
0: Well, there was an organization. That sort of preceded the fellows program. That was so. God, I learned so much from it, and it was somebody that 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 my my mentor Carl Taylor turned me onto, and it was an organization that really was focused on conservation and people's health and bringing these threads together. And they were working in the Himalaya, which I was so place I was so drawn to, and it was this idea again of of getting things started and then scaling them up, sort of tapping that, that initial energy of success. And it was, it was super compelling, but it got really confusing because it turned out they weren't really measuring that much. And so I'd go, I'd go on some, some compelling trip to a place like Tibet and i'd see all this really interesting work at the village level but at the end of the trip i wouldn't really know how to how to uh how to know if what was being accomplished and it was it was kind of upsetting and i just remember one day and, and this founder you know was just was just convinced that that if he took me on a really cool trip i'd get a sense of it and that would be persuasive but i didn't have any numbers, and I couldn't wrap my head around what was really be d- being done. And I just remember this day, this like bluebird day on the Tibetan Plateau and Everest, and this chain of mountains is in the background. And we are actually standing outside of the land cruiser yelling at each other because we can't find a way to reconcile his deep, deep sense that this thing works and I ought to see it just from experiencing it and my sort of desperate need for some numbers that could capture create a shared reality around what was happening and one we actually ended up splitting oh it was very it was actually kind of funny in retrospect he actually sent he got so mad he sent a letter to my board terminating the relationship which made them a little bemused but i realized that i really this guy was really important to me and i really cared about him and i realized that that Measuring things actually can be a way of caring for relationships because you need to find a shared reality. And you could see how the fact that we didn't have anything to really engage on around around filling out a shared reality and our friendship really suffered. And now it's really important to me that we have these metrics with all these people I admire so much. So that we can understand what's really going on together, and if it isn't a fit for us, I can explain exactly why, because that's the most that's the most important respectful thing I feel like I can do is if if things are or aren't a fit, we have a f- a framework and an understanding a way of understanding impact that i can I can explain and defend and and fundamentally show respect
1: Kevin, that is. Probably the most beautiful description I've heard for why we need common metrics in the aid sector. Uh, you know, like I, I've been parts of other conversations where people say, "I need it for my board," "I need it for USAID," "I need it for for you know because the powers that be require it." But you're saying, you know, you speak for the foundation. You need that even just so that you and your partner know what you're shooting for. You know that you're going for that you're going for impact, and what is that impact, and how are you measuring it? And what that gives you is an ability to step above some of the human relationships that can bog us down. And what I really like about that is, uh, you know, speaking for me personally, like working in the aid sector, there's lots of good people here. Everyone has the best of intentions. You know, you want to support them. Everyone wants to help each other out. But at the end of the day, that's not why people have entrusted us with their money. You know, what we're here for is to fight poverty. Um, and, And if you have those metrics that you're fighting towards, then you can hold yourself and your partners accountable um, so that's a really, that's a really moving description, Kevin. And I th- thank you so much for sharing that.
0: Well, I'm just going to kind of segue from that, you know, the a kind of at the center is this notion of, of impact as a way of keeping relationships, measuring as a way of keeping relationships healthy, but there's so many reasons to do it. I mean, one is I, I tell social entrepreneurs this all the time. It's sort of like you're throwing your life into this idea you have, the, the very least you owe yourself is to know if it's working and what <laughs> you're accomplishing. And then, you know, another is how can you get better at something you're doing without measuring? You know, the, uh, we're everything we do is about iteration, about continually trying to evolve into something better, whether it's our own foundation or it's the people we work with. And if you don't measure things, you just can't get better at them. And you know, we, we one of the one of the things that's so important to us about site visits is to understand the culture of an organization. And we're looking for a culture of curiosity and a culture where they're they're the ones first motivated to measure stuff. And you know, only of course you need to do it for funders, et cetera. But <laughs> too many funders aren't each, actually that interested in rigorous impact. And so it needs to start. It really is, is, is something you do at home first and tell others about second.
1: Right. Because once you have that goal and you have progress against that goal, that's how you build movements. That's how a team of people, you know, be it the organization or the government or the country uh, can see that there's, there's something real here and they can invest more in it, you know, might be at their time or their money or whatever it is so that it picks up the speed that it needs to get going. That's great. Kevin, this this focus on measurement, I know it's it's one of a few pillars that have developed for you over the years. You know, now now I think when you look at different investment opportunities, you're looking for a set of things that will enable that scale journey. Can you talk about some of the other pieces and how it all fits together in your current, in your current search and in your current assessments?
0: Yeah. So one of the, yeah, It's so interesting because what, as we got more and more interested in scalable solutions and really even being, being focused on trying to take solutions to scale, not organizations. I mean, we, we sort of started by saying we're not about projects, we're about organizations and their ideas. And then increasingly it was about we're really focused on trying to find scalable solutions and partnering with the organizations that are obsessed with getting those solutions to scale. And uh, as we do that, you realize that, okay, no single organization is going to take something big enough to make a decent-sized dent in a big problem. And so we really developed this notion of the doer at scale and the idea that, that you've got a good idea now and you start growing it, you start replicating on it. And, but what really takes it to its full potential is, is others picking it up and replicating themselves and that there's only there's only three other doers at scale there's either other NGOs or it's governments or it's the it's lots of businesses if you've got a for profit solution and that's probably proven the single most important sort of i don't know mental model for scalability because and, and then the next one is who's the payer at scale? Who's really, where's the money going to come from for this thing to go big? And there you've only got a few choices. You've got philanthropy, you've got taxes, you've got big aid, and you've got customers. And you got to pick. And we actually have people, seriously, we have them pick one of each. And that is... Yeah, and that that they may not turn out they're right, but at least they know where they're headed. And then when you know who your doer and payer are, you can say, Hey, is this thing simple enough for my doer to do? You know, is it simple enough that a government could actually pull it off? And is it cheap enough that the payer would pay? Because, you know, like if a mom is a customer of a cook stove you can't design that cook stove to be more expensive than she's able to pay for. Or similarly, if you have a community health worker model, it's got to be cheap enough that the finance minister is willing to pay for it. When you know you're doing pair, you can ask those most important questions about scalability, which is simple enough and cheap enough. And then we ask the question, is it big enough? So Are there, is the overlap of the need and where this thing would work, is that big enough to be interesting for us? And we're looking for this stuff that could affect, you know, why not hundreds of millions of people ultimately.
1: I love how you paint out the doer and the payer like a checklist. You know, I can imagine a scoreboard you're going and you're checking off where exactly you fit. It sounds so simple. Even if in practice it, it gets quite messy, but I, I agree with what you're saying that you know it's it's, it's going to go in one of these different directions. You mentioned the doer is is the market uh, or government or NGOs. Yeah, and I have I have the sense that like I think the market solution is clear, the government solution is clear. I have the sense that nonprofits is that is that really a scale solution? Is that is that a long term solution?
0: Yeah. So we were noticing that the sort of lot of NGOs especially a lot of bingo the big international ngos we've had organizations that were kick-ass organizations that had a really scalable idea that had sort of chosen believed in this 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 route to scale this ngo route to scale and then suddenly we're noticing hey we're not seeing a lot of this in our own portfolio and we kind of get The sense that there's some chronic stuff that's really driving this. And so we thought, you know, we but we ought to dig into this a little bit more because we've been telling our folks that maybe that this, this is this could be a promising route to scale. And so Sarah Myers on our team and I, we we just did a little survey and we picked all these people who ought to know, people from bingos, people from foundations. And we called him up and we just asked him the simple question of, can you think of any solution that's really gone big via bingos?
1: Bingos. He's talking about big international non-government organizations or NGOs.
0: And we just thought, oh, these informed people are going to tell us about all kinds of stories and we can learn from it. We can kind of help figure this thing out. And it was silence. (laughs) <laughs> they really couldn't come oh, up man. with it so then then we think okay this is just a dumb little survey it's like 20 people let's write it up and see what happens so we wrote this article called nowhere to grow in SSIR and we basically laid this out and just said hey we're not we're not seeing evidence of this happening but you know kind of the idea was like well what do we know now they're going to come out of the woodwork because it's going to be on Twitter and And again, nothing persuasive emerged.
1: That's fascinating. Yeah. What that means, if there hasn't been that kind of response, is that really, then we we should focus on doers that are government or the market. And that's a very specific set of solutions. You know, like when you look at the aid sector and all the stuff that's going on in there, there's so many different great little small projects and they're all, basically all of them say, you know, the government will take this on. (laughs) But if, if you're only looking at government and you're only looking at private sector, then you have to be a lot more intentional. Like particularly if you, if you're moving to the private sector, then there's very specific constraints that you need to put around that kind of a system in order to ensure that it'll scale and sustain. So I think there's massive implications from the writing that you're talking about.
0: That's a really nice way to put it.
1: Speaking of your team, I know Malago runs quite lean, uh, which means that you can, you know, you can make your investments in the actual beneficiaries that you're, you're serving how do you manage that? It sounds like you've a lot of responsibility, you know, a lot a lot of beneficiaries, a lot of fellows to run through. What are some of the trade-offs that you've needed to make in order to keep it as lean as it is?
0: I don't It's funny, I don't feel like we've had to make trade-offs at all. The, you know, I didn't I wish I could say I I brilliantly designed this from the outset, but I can't say that, but the fellows program has just turned out to be this really efficient way to do deep Due diligence, and to create a pipeline for ourselves, and then these very specific frameworks that we have to analyze ideas and analyze people's ability to deliver them have just proven to be a way that a bunch of generalists armed with good tools can manage pretty efficiently. And so, honestly, I don't, I don't actually feel like there's been a trade-off. I mean. Unrestricted funding really helps, and continued funding really helps because you're not you have to work really hard to get to know organizations at the beginning so that you have confidence in them, but then there's just so much less paperwork with with doing that. you know I mean God, I look at some of the other things people are monitoring when they're trying to fund, and it's just I'm ah, just way too lazy to do any of that, and so. You end up without working that hard at it um, with a pretty lean operation because you're not doing any of the any unnecessary
1: bullshit. Nice. Would you say that you know all of your fellows personally?
0: Oh, yeah. you know we have uh, the, the biggest bummer about Covid for me is we bring them all together. you know, our current we we have sort of two cohorts of ten going on at once. And so we have this group of 20 and we used to meet right on the, on a cliff overlooking the, in a little retreat place, what kind of a funky little replete retreat place and looking over the Pacific ocean for a and really intense week together. And God, we, we really got to know each other well. And then, and then we always get out to the field. We always get do site visits to see, see them and um, where they're working. And, uh, Neither one of those things are happening in COVID time, but but we've really worked hard on getting to know them virtually.
1: I think that's a great example. Even you know, speaking speaking to how organizations grow and about process and bureaucracy and how that gets introduced. You know, the literature talks about how once you get a ab- once you get above a certain size, uh, where you can't guarantee that everyone on your team is quality, where you don't know them all individually. That's where that's when they introduce. Process and bureaucracy and sign-offs and approvals. Under a certain size or above a certain quality, uh, you can just believe in the team. You know, people can run fast and loose; they can break things uh, because you know you you have quality. I, I think the the short version of what I'm saying is culture beats process. <laughs> um, yeah. And and if you if you have that quality, you know, like if you you know your fellows directly, you know the individuals, you can ask them random questions. Like you you don't need you don't need a a framework because you, you know you can trust the people that are behind the organizations. Uh, and that gives you a lot, it gives, it gives you the ability to run quite lean and also have confidence in your investments.
0: I like what you said, the culture beats process, but then good systems can maintain culture. Good performance management systems can be a way of taking a culture of uh, a high performance culture, and culture of very high standards, and translate it into ongoing work where everybody can really feel good about what's happening and know their part in what's happening and create feedback loops to keep it happening. And so I, I think that that's the cool thing is these organizations grow. Some of the best of them can really keep that, that startup feel alive, and especially when they're just constantly iterating on the basic model and then iterating on the best ways to implement, and then sometimes iterating on specific technologies that can really accelerate the journey to scale. So I think you can really keep that spirit for a long time. And And interestingly, good information systems can be key to to... Maintaining that spirit and that, that exciting sense of momentum.
1: I hear what you're saying. Last question, Kevin, before we switch over to the rapid fire. Is there, talking about successful investments of yours that have scaled, um, is there one or two that you want to highlight that really made you proud? I know it's like asking a parent to pick between their kids, but maybe if you could just talk about, you know, the first one or two that come to your mind that either from history or from current day that have really inspired you. I can think of
0: two, and they're really well-known, but I'll mention them because we knew them really early in their evolution. I first met Andrew Yoon of One Acre Fund when I was um, judging a business plan competition at Stanford. And he gets up, and he describes something I'd been looking for, which was some way to systematically serve smallholder farmers and increase their production. And he outlines this way of, of bundling credit and training together in the form of a loan. And I'm thinking, this, this is uh wow, this is kind of what I've been looking for. And then I asked him some really what for most people have been really tough questions, and he just sort of answered them kind of humbly but smoothly. And I talked to him for 20 minutes afterward, and I said, You ought to be a fellow. And that was the fellow selection process. And then you know, I think everybody knows sort of the story of them now working with uh, uh, literally some millions of farmers uh, in multiple countries.
1: That's awesome! I wish I could hear that conversation you had with him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really got us going, and then of course we had our two years to get to know him and and to be to understand what a what a driver uh, he could be. And then another one was um, what's called last mile health now, and and I heard about this this person doing remarkable work in the, in the rainforests of, of, uh, of Liberia out in a, a remote town and they called it the Tiatian Project and I, and I could barely pronounce it but we, we went there to visit uh, Raj Punjabi and there was this really great bunch of people who were trying to take on poverty in this place and doing all kinds of stuff from nutrition to to mental health, to microfinance. And they had this community health worker model where it just jumped out at me because they, they had this notion that, of turning the kind of failed traditional volunteer, amateur community health worker model on its head and reversing the sort of dependent on doctors in the capital and these sort of amateurs in the village and turning those community health workers into professionals who were well trained, well paid, you know, had had more skills and were were uh, systematically supervised. And we just said to Raj, you know, it's super hard to scale up all this other stuff you're doing. But this, man, this is a real, this is a real scalable solution, this whole professionalized community health worker stuff. And if you want to go big, you're gonna to have to run with that and leave some of this other stuff behind. And you know, Raj he, he heard that and I think he was hearing it from some other people we respect, and that's what they did. They doubled down on that. They ended up changing their name to Last Mile Health to to, you know, signify the, the remote communities that they were committed to.
1: And that organization, Good is, give them.
0: yeah, they've really gone big. And, and you know, Raj is now uh, running the malaria initiative in the Biden administration. But the organization has really taken off. is working in multiple countries and is one of the leaders of what's turned out to be a really inspiring movement toward more effective community health workers as really the front line of primary health care.
1: I was going to say I've heard of the Community Health Impact Coalition and how it's bringing together a cadre of of entrepreneur of social entrepreneurs and nonprofits that are working towards the professionalization of community health worker systems. I think they're doing incredible work.
0: Yeah, I just got to say Community Health Impact Coalition. We all call it Chic, and I just think nowadays every solution needs a chic. You know, sort of where pr- practitioners come together, form this meta organization and start taking on their common problems and um, opportunities. And it's, what a great, what a great journey that's been.
1: For sure. And it contributes even in uh, Good to Great for the social sector. They talk about how this element of advocacy of changing the landscape or the market is a necessary impact amplifier. And once you have that, those kinds of coalitions or movements, then you can actually change policy or change markets even, uh, with that yeah. much momentum. So that's a great example. Kevin, is there anything else you wanted to comment on before we switch over to the rapid fire questions?
0: Well, you know, um, I will just say that you, you just brought up the notion of collective action in taking things to scale. And it's, it's such an important and it's a critically important point for organization strategy. And we kind of think of there's there's actually six systematic accelerators of scale.
1: Well now you have to tell us what they are. Oh okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you can't just open with a teaser like that. <laughs>
0: okay, well the first is how are you going to transfer the doing onto the doer at scale? The second is how are you going to go from what's usually philanthropy at the beginning to whomever the payer at scale is going to be. And then how are you going to iterate your model to make it faster, cheaper, more efficient? And then, how are you going to use emerging tech to extend your reach and make you more efficient? And what key policy changes are you going to have to work on to open doors or lower barriers? And then, finally, how are you going to achieve collective action? You know, how are you going to bring players together? How are you going to start or join a movement? How are you going to tap that? that collective energy that that even though I'm not crazy about the, the sort of use of systems change all the time, you, you actually do start to achieve it when you bring people together like that.
1: Wow. That's quite the list. So many more questions to ask, Kevin. But unfortunately, we're running out of time. But thank you for this playbook to scale. Kevin, switching over to our rapid fire questions. Uh, my first question for you is if you have any advice for young professionals, young people who are looking to make a difference and trying to do it maybe a little smarter than past generations have?
0: Yeah, uh, get a job in a, in a company for a couple of years that's really well managed so you can learn how to get work done and uh, how how to manage effectively. And if you can avoid the golden handcuffs, you're going to be a real asset for the social sector.
1: Huh, I have not, no one else on the podcast has had an answer like that. (laughs) Usually they say, you know, go to the forests, meet the people. (laughs) That sounds good too. Um, (laughs) uh, Do you have any requests for other donors or policymakers who might be listening to this podcast?
0: Oh yeah. This is my, this is my call (laughs) these days. Boy,
1: I'll, I'll sit down. Be accountable
0: for impact. I think accountability for impact is the most important thing in philanthropy and funding. Writ large, and if if funders were accountable for impact somehow, virtually every other big program problem in the social sector would start to start to resolve.
1: Yeah, I remember. There's somewhere else you said. Have you ever heard of a foundation's executive director being fired for not having enough impact? And the answer is no, because that just doesn't happen. <laughs> so yeah, you're yeah. At the, at, like That me, level of accountability doesn't exist.
0: Yeah, yeah. People like me only get fired for. Fraud. sexual harassment
1: <laughs> 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 do you have a a gotcha a common mistake you see in the organizations you consider for investment where you're like ah not again
0: yeah what's well, amazing so so Maria Franco and our team just looks at hundreds of social entrepreneurs every year um, to for recruiting for the fellows program and it's mm-hmm. amazing how few of them can can concisely and compellingly say what they do. And you're just wading through this verbiage and you think there's a good idea in there somewhere, but, uh, I, I would just, I would just say to all of them, practice talking about what you do in really concise form and talk about it with people who don't know anything about what they do and say, you know, look for two things. One, could you tell somebody else what I do? And, would you really want to? And uh, uh, yeah, that's that's that and shitty websites are the two things that make
1: us crazy. And the nice thing about your guidance there is if they get it right, it'll help them line up all sorts of investments. There's nothing specific there about (laughs) Malago. Every donor is looking for that. Would you like to offer a, a kudos or a shout out to another mover shaker who's inspired you in your work? Well...
0: You know, I just read her uh, annual report, so I'm just going to mention my my wife, Pascal de la Fregonia, who runs Cartier mm-hmm. Philanthropies. And I, the reason I say that is because I just think this has become an example of what a corporate foundation can be. So Cartier Philanthropies doesn't doesn't do anything to align with what this luxury company's business is. They're focused completely on high impact solutions for women in poverty. And I just, wow. I, and the, the, you know, the, the, the corporate uh, management just really lets them focus on impact. And, you know, I That's suppose amazing. there's a certain irony in a, a luxury company focused on women's poverty, but it, it's, She's really transformed it into something that I hope is a model for other corporates.
1: Yeah, definitely lots of room for improvement in the corporate social responsibility space. I've seen so many laughable programs. On the reading front, um, is there a resource you'd use to stay up to date on what's going on in this industry?
0: (laughs) Yeah, uh, Twitter. Uh, (laughs) uh,
1: I think... I think
0: you're crazy not to use Twitter and not to use it well, and you really have to curate. But if you think about it, 10 to 20% of the leaders in any field are on Twitter these days. And most of the stuff that I end up reading that's really useful to me professionally is coming on Twitter. And it's kind of addictive, and you got to kind of limit your <laughs> use and all that. But it's, it's, if you really start following the right people... Um, and over a broad range of things, uh, you really stay on top of stuff as it emerges, as, you know, new papers emerge, important new findings emerge and important new syntheses and meta-analysis of stuff. It's amazing.
1: Yeah. What I find fascinating about your comment is that for me, walking the line between aid work and technology, uh, my technology friends, there's so much great technology content on Twitter. But I have the sense that in the nonprofit space, when I, when, I, when I go on Twitter, I just see case study, you know, glowing nonprofit, has built another amazing hospital, that kind of stuff. And it it I, I have the sense that among aid workers, that Twitter is much less mature of a platform. You know, people just aren't on it, or they're not as open on Twitter as they are on other platforms. They don't let their, their real opinion shine through, as it were. Um, is, there, is there one or two people you follow on Twitter that you think do do a good job of Speaking truth, <laughs> speaking bluntly.
0: Oh, uh, I mean a lot of them. I, I, I um, actually don't want to just pick out a couple because there's just so many. But I mean, if you just follow a bunch of development economists, they're 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 super straightforward about what really works and what doesn't, and they back it up. And a lot of them aren't afraid to say really. Uh, provocative things if the data backs it up. And so you've got that nice combination of real data and, real, and the real opinions that come from real data.
1: Kevin, I'll find you on Twitter and I'll find everyone you follow and I'll take it from there. <laughs> <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> uh, l- <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mean that to sound like a threat. <laughs> uh, last question for you, Kevin, just for kicks. Um, is there a book, a blog, or a podcast that you've, that you've been enjoying personally that you'd like to share?
0: Yeah, I can only usually remember the latest stuff. So uh, I loved Carl Bergstrom's Calling Bullshit. It's this wonderful book <laughs> about how, really for me, it was fundamentally how generalists like mine, and my team can recognize flaws in a in study, flaws in what we're being told that are more about logic and understanding garbage in garbage out then then really diving deep into sector expertise so it's just kind of a kind of some ways in which we without being experts in any field or even data experts can spot bullshit and that's super important for us because we we you know get a barrage of information and we need to we need to very quickly sort it into you know, noise and signal.
1: And I mean this as a compliment, Kevin, but I definitely think of you as the kind of guy that calls bullshit. <laughs> so I can see why you like that reading.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be nicer about it, though.
1: <laughs> Fair. Thank you so much for being on our show today, Kevin. It was great talking to you. Thanks for sharing your insights.
0: Oh, well, this is really fun. Thank you.
1: Okay, so we were kind of rushing towards the end of that and really just glossed over. The six strategies for scale that Kevin looks for. Thankfully, he's written it all up. Check out our show notes on the website at aidevolved.com. We've got several links to his writing on scale. Or if you want it all 280 characters at a time, you can follow him on Twitter at milago Star. This man is not afraid to speak his mind about what we need to fix in this aid sector. That's all for today. We'll see you next time.